It's just stupid. It's just, well, it's just naive because the statement itself is a, is a creed. Dear, help us if that is true, that for almost 2,000 years the church has got the gospel wrong. You're listening to 1A, a ministry of First Presbyterian Church. Welcome to the initial episode of our third series, where Derek and I will discuss some of the basics of the confessional life. I'm Josh Squires, the Minister of Counseling and Congregational Care here at First Press. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. If this is your first time giving us a listen, we want to welcome you. We appreciate you taking the time to check us out. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. For more information, you can visit our webpage, which is firstprezcolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprezcolumbia.org forward slash 1A. To find out how to contact us or how to subscribe, listen to the end of the show. If you do find this ministry useful, then subscribe using the application of your choice, and every Monday a new episode will be waiting for you. Also, while you're there, leave us some comments. As we increase the number of reviews and comments, it becomes easier for others to find our podcast. In this episode, we talk about some of the objections to the use of confessions, the difference between inductive and deductive Bible study, whether or not we are too confessional, plus a brand new segment called Orthodox or Not. Now, let's get to our show. Welcome back, Derek. Did you hear that? What you hear in the background is wild celebration. I hear nothing. No, it's wild exuberant. Okay, not exuberant. We are Presbyterian, so clapping is right out. We cannot clap. But if we could clap and we could dance, there would be dancing in the street right now. Because okay, our podcast- Josh. <laughs> Enough. Because our podcast is back. People are excited. The summer has gone. It is gone. And the fall is upon us. And it is busy. So, for those who didn't catch our series preview... And if you didn't catch our series preview, let me just put a plug in here for that. If you'll go back and you'll listen to the series preview, not only do you get to hear where Derek's been this summer, you get a book recommendation from Derek. You get to hear what it is that we're going to be talking about, what Derek's favorite thing to teach on what we're talking about is, um, and how this is useful for our daily lives. So, so Derek, what are we, what are we talking about this series? Uh, the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession. The Westminster Standards. Perhaps we'll say something about the catechisms, the shorter and larger catechisms. But these are the subordinate standards of our church, of our denomination, of Presbyterians Mm -hmm. in particular. Um, The Westminster Confession of Faith. And are we starting directly off with the standards starting chapter 1? Is that is that where we started? No. Is that the right answer? Yes. No, okay. we're not. Okay. No, uh, because we need to talk. We need to talk a little bit about why we have confessions. Mm. Uh, there would be some resistance by some to the idea of um, a book of doctrine that that would seem to impose truth on the bible so you've got you've got the you know no no creed but the bible people yeah um which is naive at best mm. and catastrophic at worst huh. uh but then you've also got to think uh 
a trajectory in our time of postmodernity and the effects of that upon people's views of all kinds of things like like history. Mm. You know, there's a postmodern antipathy to history. Belief is is evolving and truth is evolving and what people believed in a past century, how could it possibly have any relevance to me today? So some of that is just just an antipathy towards history as 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 old and boring and irrelevant but it but it also has undercurrents i think that are postmodern in that truth evolves and truth changes so uh, what what some bunch of guys said in the 17th century how could that possibly have any you know relevance or bearing on what i should believe and and whether i get into heaven or not right. have you seen an increase just in your experience uh the influence of postmodernity in in the pew, and have you seen an, an, an increase of influence in the seminaries? Oh uh, yes, yeah, some. I mean, I I I don't wish to sound alarmist or anything, but I do think that you see in the seminary, my own including, is included in this, um, almost the disappearance of, say, the traditional history professor. Uh, there are very few seminaries now that hire his, history professors. So that the very teaching of history is regarded as, hmm, it's not it's not number one. It's not in the elite sort of courses that people think they ought to know and learn. You can do it online. You can do it, just read a book or something. But it's, right. it's, it's kind of a Cinderella subject. Yeah. Um, I, I think that in class... I'm always fighting that great ugly ditch, mm. as Lessing called it, uh, of uh, history, mm. and and trying to say that history is important, mm. uh, that we have creeds that go back to the fourth and fifth centuries yeah. that define the doctrine of the Trinity, the two natures, one person of Christ. Mm and so on, and that you, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you open your Bible as to what it is I believe about Jesus. Right. Um, these truths have been have been talked about and, and argued about and debated about over and over and over and over, and they've stood the time test of time, and, and there comes a point at which you can trust that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned this is sort of um, on a parallel track to what's going on in school of theology. Because school of theology is also looking at the confession, though here we're trying to be maybe a little more practical. But you mentioned, and it was really just a... Um, you mean we're not practical at the school of theology? Of course you mean practical at the school of theology. Um, you mentioned just a little side comment. And in, in this arena where there was some skepticism about confessions, that it was similar to some of the skepticism you see with the difference between inductive and deductive Bible studies. Could, could you fill that out for us more? Maybe give us some definitions of, of what those are and pros and cons of each, each style and, and, and why there might be some similarity here? Yes. Um, I, I'm not sure that everyone who does inductive Bible study, does it with a fully worked out philosophy 
uh, as to how one ascertains meaning. Right. What does this text mean? And I, I imagine some people just want community and they want uh, so, something that's a little less less imposing and threatening. And, and, and I get all that. But but there is a there is a, a philosophical principle here, a hermeneutical principle, a principle of interpretation, as to how does one how does one understand the text? Mm. Is there meaning in this text, and how do you get at that meaning? Mm. Well, our tradition says that you get at that meaning through a, a hermeneutic of a grammatical historical interpretation. So meaning involves words, nouns, verbs, adjectives, clauses, subordinate clauses, paragraphs, chapters, context, the the situation in which this was being addressed. All of these things add to the meaning. And not everybody in a Bible study has all that information. Right. Now, they might have insights into some practical application of it. That's, that, that's often the case. But... but there are those who are suspicious of what is seen as a lecture, right? And mm-hmm. and the word now, lecture, carries a kind of negative connotation. Right. Or a sermon even. I mean, maybe not in our circles, but I mean, the, the word ser- sermonizing right. suddenly becomes... You're preaching at me. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and it has the connotation of something that's being imposed, almost tyrannically yeah. opposed. So there's a difference between between inductive and deductive Bible study. And, uh, you know, do you have to sort of tease out truth mm. from the text every time you study the Bible? And the, there is value in that. Right. You know, where does this truth come from? Well, it actually does come from the text. Sometimes it comes from the relationship of one text to another. Yeah. So it's in the collection of texts that that truth emerges. And it's good to show people, yeah, that this is where this truth comes from because the Bible says there's only one God and the Bible says the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Right but there's only one God. So the doctrine of the Trinity of three-in-oneness yeah. is derived actually from the data of Scripture. But I don't have to, you know, I don't have to prove that every single time I, I read the Bible. So at some point, I just say, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. right. And so then it becomes a statement of doctrine or a or a little catechism mm. or, or a confession of faith or a creed even. in churches where they don't have as many uh, trained teachers as we do. We've, we've got a number of people here who have been trained in seminaries or had higher education, um, but they want to give their members the ability to run Bible studies. What, what tools might they use to stay away from the pitfalls of some of the deductive, uh, 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 inductive Bible studies? Oh, that's a that's a tricky question, Josh. Mm. Um, One it, we can completely cut with the magic magic edit stick. If well, we need to. you know, it, it it depends on a lot of things. I mean, if I was if I was giving advice to somebody who was going to lead a Bible study, but he had no formal theological training, yeah, you know, then you must rely on those 
who have, mm-hmm. whether they're dead or alive, right. and that means in either written form or if they're alive in oral form, listening to a, somebody else's Bible study or right. or sermon or whatever. Um, but, you know, everybody who leads a Bible study needs some acquaintance with a body, a system of truth, mm. right? It's the grid line, right? You 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 wander off the reservation here, right? And you're in you're in trouble. So let me tell you where the boundaries are. Right. Let me tell you where some of the markers are on the map, so that when you look around, you can say, "Well, this this is where I am." Right. Right. I can find my location. Yeah. Uh, so so knowing where the roads are, where the mountains are, where the sun is. Right. All that stuff. None of us know how to do that anymore because we just use a GPS. But, right. but, right. Right. but there was a time people would right. use all these things to to find out where they are. Right. And and it seems the confession is a good tool here. Like it would fall firmly inside knowing the confession and being able to turn to the chapter on God or the Trinity or, or salvation helps to make right. Some of those right. But grid lines. but as a stepping stone to that, I. I I was telling the folks on Wednesday night that the Bible itself does that. You know, the Bible itself has little statements that are almost like creeds. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like little statements of faith. Jesus is Lord is, is one of them in the New Testament. Um, the hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Yeah thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, was found in fashion as a man. That that yes. passage. And it seems to me that that is um, an attempt on the part of the... Paul is quoting this, I think. Yeah. This wasn't Paul's. This was something that the church, the early church, had put together as a kind of catechism. Mm. A catechism about the person and work of Christ in his pre-existence, in his incarnation, and in his exaltation. Mm-hmm. So it's a it it has all the hallmarks of being a very early creedal statement on mm-hmm. the part of Christians before they had the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, those sayings, this is a, a a trustworthy saying, right? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I was chief. Yeah. Th- those sayings in the pastoral epistles mm. all have the hallmarks of being early Christian confessions. Right. And I imagine that when Christians met together, they would they would recite, or maybe maybe one would say to another, or maybe they said it collectively. I'm not sure. Some some research on that is, is currently being done on, you know, what exactly did the early church do when they when they worshipped before right. the New Testament? Right. Well, and it's helpful there that Paul is instructing Timothy, someone we would traditionally, if we were going to equate it, I think equate into a pastoral role. It's not just actually members who need to do this, but pastors need to do this too. They need to check their commentaries and look across the history of theology. If you think you've come up with a new interpretation of something, and they're, after 2,000 years of the sharpest minds, they haven't thought through something, that is usually a red flag that you are going off the reservation, not that you found something new. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's it's possible that the church gets things wrong. True. You know, for a thousand years in the medieval 
era, let's say from 500 to 1500, the church got many things wrong, yeah. especially on the atonement. Mm. So uh, in the Westminster Confession, for example, there are some um, fairly new-ish statements made about the understanding of the work of Christ. Mm. Uh, actually, it doesn't say anything new about the person of Christ. It mm. merely quotes Chalcedon mm. and Nicaea. But so it, it it just goes back a thousand years and says the church has done this, been there, done that. Yeah. They tick it off. But in the work of Christ, there's something new because the church got it wrong. So it is possible for the church to get things wrong. So simply because the church has been saying this for 1,500 years doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. You know, the new perspective on Paul, yeah. you know, devotees of that are, are often saying the church has misunderstood the doctrine of justification by faith right. alone in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, right. in a very serious way that that radically reshapes the very gospel itself. Mm. Now, dear, help us if that is true. Yeah. That for almost 2,000 years, the church has got the gospel wrong. Yeah. Right? Because if justification is the doctrine of the standing or falling of the church, as, as Luther said it was, yeah. then, then dear, help us if we've got it wrong for 1,800 years or 1,900 years and, right. and we've only just begun to understand it now. Right. Right. That would be fairly serious. Yeah. Um, but it's also unlikely, yeah. I mean, really unlikely, yeah. that, that that amount of catastrophic mis misinterpretation of a basic doctrine could take place. For 2,000 years. Right. Yeah. And I, for one, don't buy it. Yeah. One of the charges that gets made against those who would be confessional, like us, is that we lean on the confession sometimes too much, that we should lean on Scripture more than we lean on the confession. I remember coming from a non-confessional background. When I first came into specifically the PCA, uh, I, I non-denominational, became Reformed, came into a confessing church PCUSA. So it subscribed to the Westminster Standards were the only right standards. Um, it didn't import all the Book of Confession. Um, but it didn't, didn't quote the Westminster very much, did not even look its direction very much. And then we transitioned to the PCA, my, my family, um, and this is 10, 12 years ago now. Um, at the same time, another guy was coming into the PCA. He is now an elder. Um, I, by the Lord's grace, am, am now uh, a minister. But I remember us both remarking how, how much we noticed the confession being used and quoted and mentioned, and it was almost scary. Like, well, they use the do they can use the confession as much as they use scripture, and why would they use it that much? And are they putting too much weight on the confession? Do you think that's a valid concern? Yes, it could be. I, I don't think that if you did an analysis of the last one hundred sermons that I've preached here, that I've quoted the confession of faith more mm -hmm. than a couple of times. I mean, right. I don't. I just don't do that. Right. Now, in a, in on Wednesday nights at a, at a teaching meeting, yeah. which is something different I have and and do. Yeah, I think that preaching should be about exp expounding the word. Is, is that intentional for you? So, yes. so you think there are times when I could put a statement from the confession here, but I want to stay away from that and really expound this from scripture because that's what well time of the and is and for. part because I am. 
I am deeply conscious, less so here in First Pres, Colombia, though, I have to say. But I am conscious of those for whom, quoting the confession, could be a stumbling block, mm. right? So I, I don't want to do that. Right. Um, you know, it's like it's like saying, how often do you use the term Calvinist? Well, in conversation, I might use it quite a lot, in fact, and certainly in teaching at, at a seminary. But, but in preaching, I, I'm not sure how often I've actually said yeah. the word Calvinist. Yeah. Um, I might have mentioned John Calvin, right, the reformer, but. Um, and I'm not. I'm not averse to that. I don't want to go in the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, because because we do have a formal commitment to the Westminster Standards. Our office bearers subscribe it, and yeah. we as ministers subscribe it and take a vow to that effect. Yeah. Uh, and we're supposed to tell our fellow presbyters if we if we change our views on any aspect of the confession. So they are, but they are subordinate. They're subordinate to the to the scriptures. And if if in our um, exposition of scripture we suddenly decide that something in the confession is incorrect then then we need to correct mm. the confession mm. right i've not reached that point yet but right. but if that were to be true then that's the direction i would follow right okay so one new segment this is the the last thing we'll do for this episode we have a new segment we're going to try it so we would love feedback from our listeners here about whether or not they like this segment or not. But we've got a new segment that we are calling Orthodox or Not, where I'm going to try and bring a statement, a statement that you might hear uh, just in passing or in the pews or, or maybe even in the classroom uh, that we want to evaluate and say, is that statement Orthodox? And if it's not Orthodox, is it heresy or is it heterodox? Could you start maybe by just giving us brief definitions of those three categories, orthodox, heterodox, and heresy? Well, strictly speaking, I think a heresy is something that denies an ecumenical creed. So it it would be a denial of a basic truth that would be regarded as foundational, fundamental. First of all, truth. Heterodox would be something in between, I think. I think heterodox for me would be something that might deny the standard of doctrine held by your denomination, perhaps, Mm. which includes something like um, a statement on infant baptism. Right. But ruled by elders and deacons. Right. Right. That right. the government of the church consists of of elders and 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 deacons. deacons. Right. And lots of churches that only have deacons. Yeah. Uh, no elders. And uh, is that heresy? No, that's it's not heresy. It's just heterodox. Okay. So the statement that has been kind of at play as we've talked about this topic, both in School of Theology and even in this episode, has been the statement, no creed but Christ. So is that statement, if someone said, I don't believe in confessions, no creed but Christ, is that an orthodox statement? No. Okay. Then is it heresy or is it heterodox? 
Well, you can get into heaven thinking there's no creed but Christ, right? So I don't want to put it in the heresy category. Yeah. If you if if your views are heretical, you're not going to get into heaven. Right. And that, that's a, a really helpful frame of reference. Um. It's just stupid. It's just, well, it's just naive because the statement itself is a, is a creed. Right. My creed is no creed, creed but Christ. Right. Right. So you, you've been, you're hoisted on your own patard or whatever that means. Right. And, um, it's, it's just naive. Um, because there are certain truths like justification by faith alone. Apart from the works of the law, that's a that's a statement of truth, yeah. right? But it's in the Bible. Yeah. But it's also it also needs to be teased out. The doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, if there's no creed but Christ, no creed but the Bible, maybe. Yeah. Um, but it's still it's still naive and and silly. Thank you for being back with us. Uh, I'm really looking forward to our series this fall. Uh, you can find all of our series and all of our podcasts on our website. You can also find it on your favorite podcasting applications, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. So are we getting these cookies every week? Oh, hey, yes. Thank you to our number one fan, maybe, maybe even our only fan, but our number one fan, my wife. I think she, I think she may be the only one. Um these are phenomenal cookies. Fresh, hot cookies delivered. So if you are in Colombia in the downtown area... I'm not sure we can advertise. Yeah, you can go to a place. Email me if yes. you want to know the name of the place. Yeah, and you can have fresh, hot cookies delivered, and they are scrumptious. All right, see you next week. Thank you, Derek. You've been listening to 1A, a counseling ministry of First Presbyterian Church. We encourage you to listen to all our episodes, which you can find on our webpage at firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can also check us out on all your favorite podcasting applications, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe. Also, don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. If you have comments, questions, or issues you'd like us to wrestle with, contact us. You can reach us at our email address, which is 1A at firstprescolumbia.org. That's 1A at firstprescolumbia.org. Or via our Twitter account, which is at 1A Podcast. That's at 1A Podcast. Or by phone, 803-281-1795. 803-281-1795. For Dr. Thomas, I'm Josh Squires. We look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.